From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, a Ukrainian student describes what the last year has been like after Russia's invasion of his home country. Then Derek Mosley joins us for a preview of a narrated tasting he'll be leading in honor of Black History Month. We come to the table with something in common. We both have to eat. And then we realize from talking to each other that we have more and more in common. And it's that fellowship is that's that's what's been missing. Plus, we'll tell you all about Wisconsin's maple syrup season and some of the many tree tapping events you can attend over the next month. Maple sugaring season is one of the most electric months that we have here at the Nature Center. Um, we like to joke that there are five seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, and maple sugaring season. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here's today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Joe Biden visited Kyiv this week and pledged more American support for Ukraine as the war drags on. A Wisconsin university, Concordia up in Mequon, has a special connection to Ukraine. Its partner university, called Ukrainian American Concordia University, is in Kyiv. WUWM education reporter Emily Files checked in with one of its students, 21-year-old senior Anton Prima. He lives in Bucha with his family and is earning bachelor's degrees at both UACU and another university. Emily spoke to Anton on Tuesday, just as President Biden was delivering a speech about the war in Ukraine. With Biden visiting Ukraine this uh, week, I just want to ask what your reaction has been to what he said and and your thoughts on on what's going on this week. Well, regarding or commenting on that, it was kind of surprising on one hand at first. You know, he's arriving uh, all of a sudden in Ukraine, which and also it was interesting because it was a little, little bit kind of a glimmer of hope because we've heard a lot about U.S. and it was kind of a representative or at least a figure we've heard of. So it was nice to see that he came to Ukraine, visited it. I was really glad to hear about, you know, the support that U.S. is going to provide and just I guess, being with us until the end. Mm -hmm. Could you take me back to a year ago when this happened and where were you and what was your reaction? Oh, um, so on 24 February, I was in my bed. I got woken up, I guess, at 4 a.m., approximately the first time by my mother, I think. And she's telling me that, you know, wake up, we're being attacked. And at first, I, I kind of didn't believe and I didn't understand what was going on. And so... I decided to go back, maybe nap a little bit more. And then the second time I was woken up at 5 a.m. So my mother ran again and said, like, this is serious. You should come downstairs and take a look at the TV. And so I realized, okay, I'm going to wake up and then just go check out what's going on. And then we see on the TV, live broadcast and, you know, this red banner at the bottom, it says alert and the war has started. The invasion has started, you know, Russia is here. And that, that was the moment I realized that this is it. This is the real deal, I guess. This is not a joke. And um, we were all shocked. We didn't know what to do. I mean, I was numb. I kind of sat in my chair and realized that I don't know what to do because should we run? Should we hide? Should we, what are we supposed to do in this matter? We started to see outside Russian helicopters and Bucha specifically. So this is all happening in Bucha right now. I'm in, you know, and I'm still here right now, actually. Um, so I, we see Russian helicopters. And then after we started hearing missiles, so we started hearing that couple sounds like whistling, you know, banging and booming. And we realized that, you know, the enemy is here. And so they started 
um, attacking, I think, one of the airports, which is in Hostoben. And so we heard missiles. And then that's the moment we kind of start realizing that there's a threat and now we should do something about it. Our neighbors had a cellar uh, and underground where usually people keep their, I guess, assortments of food, which are canned in a jar. And right away, we cut the fence between our fence and neighbors. And for a couple of days, we started running back and forth from, you know, into the cellar. So basically, when they stopped kind of bombing, or at least there wasn't any noise, we went back to our house just to take a nap. And as soon as we heard again noise, that's the moment we realized, you know, we got to get back to the cellar. Um, I think it was the third day or the fourth day. Um, there was a little window. It was quiet. And we were kind of afraid of that moment. But then we also realized that maybe this is our time and chance to maybe um, get in our car and evacuate. Because if we stayed there, we were afraid that we possibly could not survive. So we had this moment where we had like 20 minutes, I remember, we started grabbing everything we could and we just evacuated out of there. And the issue was also that one of the neighbors notified us that um, the Kadelevce or the from Chechnya um, were coming straight to Bucha. And we were afraid that, you know, because of their history, that they're very threatening. And we were worried that, you know, this is a serious issue, which we should not neglect. And then we evacuated. Um, we were traveling to Lviv. So that was the place we decided to evacuate as quickly as possible in one day, I guess. Um, after we've evacuated, um, the next day, um, we decided kind of, I specifically, and then my father, um, we decided that we wanted to help and do volunteering. We also, with my father, for example, we carried a lot of humanitarian aid. It was, for example, medicine. Um, a lot of times it was food. And I personally, for example, wrote a lot of letters to international organizations. So they provided maybe us some kind of uh, various things. It could be medication as usual. It could be maybe food. And I was just helping the charity organization, the volunteer group to, I guess, gather all the resources to, you know, help our men that are right now on the front lines. So... And so the, this was you, your brother, your dad, and who else was in your family at the time? And my mother. So that was four of us, uh, our whole family. Yeah. We also had another dog. It's a Chihuahua. Yeah. So we also <laughs> grabbed her, put her in a vehicle and drove off. So then what you were volunteering in Lviv and what happened after that? Yeah. So I went back to Kiev. We were there for a certain time because we um, I'll tell you the truth. So after we came back to Kiev, I had difficulty kind of adjusting and going back to Bucha because it's it was just mentally like taxing. I just couldn't bear myself to go back there. It was frightening. And it's just you have this paranoia and it's just difficult. Right. So after a traumatic experience, you kind of don't want to go back there. When did you move back from Kiev to Bucha? Approximately September or October. I guess September, I was already in Bucha. So I came back. And also the reason why we came back to Bucha was because um, our house kind of got a little bit, uh, I guess it, it faced some collateral damages from all the missiles. Cause one of the missiles actually hit our neighbor's, um, um, what a backyard basically. So near his pool, it hit. And so the issue is that um, his doors and all of his windows kind of fell inside the house. They cracked open, right? So there were a lot of damages. And our house um, has a couple shrapnels. So there are holes inside. Um, uh, right now I'm sitting in a room and we have a wardrobe and there's just these large holes that went through the wardrobe specifically. And so we had to repair the damages and then clean up the house. So many people have fled Ukraine to Poland and other places in Europe and even the United States. What was that decision like for your family to stay or go? 
I mean, at the moment, it's it's difficult, right? So one thing that's uh, the issue for us, um, as you know, we have this thing called the martial law. And the one kind of the main point about the martial law is that men from 18 to 60 years old are prohibited to leave um, the country. And so one of the things is that our family cannot leave because we are all adults at the moment. So we're staying here. Does that mean that you, your brother, and your dad could possibly be drafted, um, be called up to serve in the military? Absolutely, yeah. We we could be drafted easily, so at any moment, I guess. How do you feel about that? Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, uh, it's our moral obligation, I think, that we do have to kind of protect. I mean, we are being attacked, and it's it's... It's in hopes that we will protect our future generations also. So that's one thing. And of course, it could be maybe frightening or everything else, but you should, we just don't think about that at the moment. So it's difficult to say. Bucha was the site of a really horrible massacre by the Russian forces. Your family left before that happened, right? But yeah. what kind of we impact heard- has that had? Um, yeah, so I, after I left, I saw it also on the news. So we were, we luckily were able to, I guess, avoid that moment. But the thing about it is we still heard from our neighbors and one of our neighbors told a story. It's so it's a husband and a wife. So the wife had a mother. And so she was of old age and the issue is that she needed medication. But as you know, because of the invasion, um, there was no medication, right? So where are you going to get it if it's occupied the Kiev region by the Russians? And so she was getting more ill from time to time. And this resulted in the fact that she passed, but they couldn't bury her in the cemetery because it was occupied by the Russians. So what they did was they had to bury her for a certain period of time in their backyard. They later, after everything has, I guess, finished, and you know, we, uh, the Ukrainian forces were luckily able to deoccupy this, uh, the Bucha area. They were able to, uh, I guess, uh, re- rebury her let's say it that way in a official cemetery so that's one of the stories i heard and it's just it's heartbreaking and it's it's horrible it was good that your family left when you did yeah but it was again it was i guess it was some kind of not even i don't know maybe a blessing maybe some prayer or a hope but it was just i don't know what happened but we just saw that window and it was just a 20 30 minute window and i don't understand how that occurred but Luckily, my brother was there to push me, and then I was with my brother able to push our family to make a decision. How has your education been affected over the past year? Well, because the COVID-19 pandemic, we were all online at the moment, so even before the war started. um, But then when the war kind of started, you know, you have to understand that everyone is kind of confused and no one knows what to do at the moment because everyone is uh, protecting themselves, trying to survive, and so... The decision that some universities made, for example, in my national physical university education of sports of Ukraine, um, they decided to postpone at least for one month to let all the students kind of, you know, um, get safety or at least receive safety or just settle in. Um, But my other university, for example, which I study, which is UACU, right? After, I guess, a couple of weeks, they decided to, so they gave us a form that was very different. It wasn't online even, it was distance. And so we didn't have to attend classes. We just had assignments, which weren't, um, sometimes they were easy um, or sometimes they were a little bit intermediate, but they tried to ease the education so we wouldn't be stressed out. 
So that's one thing I'm also thankful for. So they gave us a time because they knew this was difficult for us. And especially like you have to understand, right? Everyone is moving back and forth and um, no one knows what to do, right? And you're not thinking about, oh, should I submit this assignment by the deadline? You're thinking of, I got to survive. So you didn't take any breaks from school. You've continued to study at both universities. Yeah, I decided to keep on proceeding. Um, we have to understand when I arrived to Lviv, I was it's you're a little bit kind of mentally broken down in certain aspects. It's just difficult to think and it's just difficult to analyze everything because there's just so much information, so many things happening. But then you kind of ease into the educational process and it just helps you to forget a lot about the moments which you would um, think about all day long. So it actually kind of lets you subconsciously not think about the I guess even the trauma you went through to a certain degree, right? So you, you cause you're thinking of other things. Are there um, internet outages, power outages that you have to deal with now that you didn't have to deal with before or other things that make oh. it hard to continue the education? Oh, that, that's an interesting question. Um, when the missile Russia, Russian missile attacks started beginning intensively, uh, or at least really intense in Kiev, for example, you've heard about it approximately in September. That's when the issues with power outages began, right? Because they couldn't supply everyone. And so when we had these large power outages, at first we were kind of thinking, okay, how do I time manage? That was one thing I learned. It was, for example, if I didn't have electricity, I would work, um, for example, do all my assignments as much as I could on my laptop because I had a certain amount of you know, battery life, right? And then when we had electricity, we do other things. For example, cook, clean, or maybe just something else, which was more prioritized because you had electricity. We had a generator, we bought a generator. So that was really important. Uh, it could fuel all our gadgets, for example, maybe a uh, few other devices, which would discharge. Um, then we bought an addition, which was a car battery. We had jumper cables. And this is important because uh, we needed Wi-Fi, for example, right, for a stable connection a lot of times. And we had optical fiber cable or fiberglass cable. And so with the use of a, a car battery, we would basically give power to our Wi-Fi router. And yeah, it was it's difficult. It was at first difficult, but we learned to adapt. That's the thing that I guess people should maybe um, just understand that you need to adapt to conditions. So what is day-to-day -day life like for you now? It has become better in an essence that we have more electricity now. So that's one thing maybe a little bit less stressful because we kind of started learning how to deal with a lot of issues or at least cope with. And just uh, one thing I do need to say is that I guess without my family, it would be so much difficult. Mm -hmm. Is your family still going to your neighbor's house when you need to take shelter underground? Well, when it was, so since February 24th, yeah, we did that, but kind of now we've started doing it less and less. It's just because, um, at, we're staying in our house and we feel safe in our house at the moment. So we stopped doing that at the moment currently. Well, I'm glad that you feel safe. Yeah, we're we're feeling safe at now. And I guess that's what we cherish. It. And, you know, a good sleep also, because I've never thought about it. But, you know, having a good sleep is just it's it's I don't know. It's even a privilege. Sometimes it feels like. How does it feel that we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the war starting? I mean, it's it's it just feels traumatic, right? Because a lot of lives have been lost at the moment, and it's it's just difficult thinking about that, right? It's not like a positive anniversary. It's more of just like a reminder that this is happening, and and also like 
I do want to thank it. It's just really important that people, for example, the soldiers who are on the front lines, like they're protecting us and they're, they're giving me an opportunity to study, receive education, and just stay safe and feel safe. So they're putting their lives at risk, and this is important. So I'm very thankful for them also. Is the future something that you allow yourself to think about, or do you just try to stay in the present moment? You know, as a 21-year-old who I'm sure you had ideas of what you wanted to do as an adult, and now that's probably changed because of the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. The lesson I've learned is that it's hard to plan for even tomorrow because you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow specifically um, with the war happening, which is, again, real. So at the moment, after this lesson, I'm living in the present as much as possible. And I'm sometimes planning, of course, you can't just say or neglect that, no, I'm not thinking about my future. But, you know, just sometimes going back and forth is a, a healthy dose of both, I'd say. So I stay in the present because we need to think about what's happening right now. But for the future also, like I'm, for example, thinking about masters, right? So where do I want to go? Or how do I, what am I going to do? What am I going to study specifically? So, but just not too ahead. <laughs> I guess that's what I would say. Anton Prima is a student at Ukrainian American Concordia University, which is affiliated with Concordia University in Mequon. Prima spoke to WUWM's education reporter Emily Files from his home in Buka, near Kyiv. Do you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you listen to your podcast to download and hear us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. Nothing goes together like maple syrup and pancakes. But what about pancakes and pickles? There's also a River Edge tradition that I hope that everyone who comes out uh, has the ability to take part in, and that is to try some pickle slices on your pancakes. Did you say sliced pickles? Yeah, you get a chance to try some uh, dill pickle slices, and it actually is a pretty good combination. It doesn't sound like it would be, but it is. We'll tell you about a chance to try out the pancake pickle delicacy in about 15 minutes in our Wandering Wisconsin series. But first, Derek Mosley joins me to share some of the rich history of African-American food culture. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. There are so many ways Black Americans have contributed to America's food culture throughout history. And with great food often comes great conversation and fellowship. It's those key elements that are the goal of Milwaukee Films Black History Month upcoming event, For the Soul, a narrated food tasting and conversation. 
The event is in partnership with Marquette University's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education, and Derek Mosley is its director. He and Tariq Moody of Hyphen will explore the rich history of African-American food culture with this special narrated tasting. To share more about the event and some of the history that shaped its menu, Mosley joins me now. Derek Mosley, welcome back to Lake Effect. It's a pleasure to speak with you. It's my turn this month. Yeah, Audrey, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy and Research and Civic Education has partnered with Black Lens of Milwaukee Film, and you're bringing a narrative tasting event to Turning Tables. And you and Tariq Moody will be leading this event. Can you share a little more about how this came together and the roles that you both play in it? Yeah, sure. So just to start, it all came together because this was part of the programming out of the Lubar Center at Marquette Law School. So our goal is try to get people together to talk, to listen, and to fellowship with each other. And we thought it's Black History Month. It'd be a great idea to bring people together over food because we all need to eat and just eat and talk, meet some new people. So we're going to have people sitting in places where they don't know the people so we can get to engage with each other, which is missing in today's society. And then while we do this, we're going to tell you a little story about all the dishes you're going to eat that night because it's all part of the African diaspora. And so we're going to pull it all together and show why it became part of American cuisine. So I'm really excited. In fact, my stomach just growled. I don't know if you heard it, but my stomach just growled. I'm so excited. Well, it's certainly a very mouthwatering thing to look forward to. And another important thing I want to note is that the event is taking place at Turning Tables, which is at Turner Hall, and all the dishes will also be prepared by African-American chefs. Yes, it's two things to remember about that. One is that Turning Tables is also owned by an African-American female. So the venue's owned by an African-American. We have uh, four African-American chefs. We have uh, representatives from Daddy's Soul Food Grill. Uh, we have representatives from Heaven's Table Barbecue. We have Jervis, Mr. Barbecue himself, is also going to be part taking place, taking part in it. And we also took uh, into consideration our vegan brothers and sisters. And so Vegan Soul will be providing all the other dishes, but providing a vegan form so that everybody can take part in this. You and Tariq Moody are leading the narrative aspect of this event. So with so many dishes and stories to explore, how did you want to curate the arc of the meal and the stories that you share? You know, did it start with the stories or the dish for you? You know how it really started? It started, uh, so Tariq and I were both James Beard judges last year. And so um, that's how it all started. We were just talked about, it'd be great to have an event where we could talk about the contributions of African-Americans to American cuisine. And we just kept talking about it, talking about it. And at that time, I was a judge. And so it was just going to be something we were going to do on our own. And then when I took the job over at Marquette Law School, it changed the whole dynamic. It just got fast forward into the high gear. And we're both ready. We're both big fans of food. We're both big fans of black history. And so it all comes together. It's sort of like the best of both worlds, right? Food and history. For me, I couldn't get any better than that. Can you share a little bit more about your experience being a judge for the James Beard competition? And, you know, we see that on the outside as like, that's the best of the best. This is elite culinary cooking awards, all that stuff. But taking that mindset into a public event and how to inform that. Yeah. So, um, you know, what's really interesting is that uh, oftentimes, the James Beard is like the rest of society, right? Uh, we've gone to this phase where marginalized communities weren't really represented in all of these competitions, right? So best chef, best restaurant, things like of that nature, you didn't see them a lot 
being represented. And James Beard, like many corporations, has now focused their attention to trying to become more inclusive and making sure that all forms of food are brought up to the spectrum of being fine dining or good dining. And so that's what started all of it. It's just that we have so many amazing restaurants here in the city, black owned, who are doing great things. And everybody eats what we're going to, we're going to have uh, on Sunday. Everybody eats it. And just to know the history behind it just changes everything. And there's some, I, I mean, I, I could just tell you one of my favorite foods ever, and we're going to have it is macaroni and cheese. Absolutely love it. But very few people know that it was introduced to the American cuisine by an enslaved African named James Hemings. James Hemings was actually uh, the older brother of Sally Hemings. And so James Hemings was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. But we didn't have ambassadors back in that day. So he was actually the minister to France. So he would travel to Paris a lot. And he brought James with him because he just loved James cooking. James was the... Uh, his personal chef, if you will. And while James was there and Jefferson were there, the way it works in France, they'd already abolished slavery. So Jefferson had two choices. He either had to free James Hemings or pay James Hemings. And so Jefferson opted to pay him. And so what Hemings did with that money was he took French, hired a French tutor and then enrolled in a French cooking school. So he became the first American, if you will, to be taught at a French cooking school. Graduated, uh, learned to speak French, started to work in hotel restaurants in Paris. And uh, one of the dishes he brought back was what the French referred to as macaroni pie, but he added his own little spin to it and became our macaroni and cheese. And it's, it's I don't know if there's a kid in America who doesn't eat macaroni and cheese. And just to know that it was brought to our culture by an enslaved African. That's just one example. There are so many contributions from Black Americans to America's food culture. So can you share some other examples or what other contributions stand out to you the most, whether it's included in this event or simply something that sticks with you internally? Yeah. So let me just, can I just tell you the menu real quick? Absolutely. Just to give you a general idea. So uh, we have Daddy's Soul Food Grill, which will be providing uh, fried chicken. Chicken was a big part of the diet because uh, chicken had eggs and they were meat. So it did serve two purposes. Uh, we also gonna have the mac and cheese as I mentioned, and we're gonna have candied yams. Now they're not really candied yams. They're actually sweet potatoes, uh, candied sweet potatoes, but we always interchange the word candied yams. I'm gonna talk about the difference between a yam and a sweet potato because they are very different. Um, but they have the same taste, a, a very similar taste. And yams, of course, are native to Africa. And so it was like a nice transition um, from those coming from West Africa to use the uh, sweet potato in, in lieu of not having yams. Um, we have brisket, which is also another dish that was uh, brought by native and black populations, uh, especially the enslaved weren't given the best cuts of the meat. And so a brisket is a tough piece of meat. If it wasn't for the West African form of cooking of slow and low, right? Low heat, but keep it slow and cook it for hours. It, it just became soft and moist and just, oh, my gosh, I'm dying over here. So anyway, and then we have cornbread, which is also another fine dish that was also introduced. Um, like I told you, Vegan Soul is going to have all that. And it's going to be topped off at the end with sweet potato pie from Mr. Dye's Pies. And what people don't understand is 
a lot of the English colonists when they were here were all about meat pies. So pot pies, minced meat pies, turkey pies, chicken pies, things of that nature. And it was an influx of Africans that started to add more fruit to pies and using the sweet potato because the sweet potato becomes one of the most uh, flexible vegetables that you can use. And so that's how we started using sweet potato pie. Uh, and a lot of people use pumpkin pie, but if you're from down south, it's sweet potato pie. And you know the difference as soon as you taste it. And so they might look the same, Audrey, but they are not the same. People will be enlightened at this time. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited. My mouth is just watering right now as I'm talking to you because I'm excited um, for everybody to just get an idea of what these chefs are doing in town, right? They're doing great things that you may not have been uh, aware that they existed. And you might just come on in and have a nice meal with us. And then hopefully you patronize their places later on in the year. Right. And outside of this event, outside of Black History Month, you know, what can we do to change the way African-American food and the culture surrounding it has been overshadowed, particularly here in Milwaukee? Yeah. Patronize, patronize, patronize. Right. Um, so we're really fortunate. We had in Milwaukee the first African-American to ever win a James Beard Award here in Milwaukee. Dane Baldwin won the, the James Beard last year for uh, Diplomat. And so he's making black history, if you will, here in Milwaukee. And um, so that's the way we have to do it is people have to patronize. So there's, I mean, whether it's African, whether it's Jamaican, you know, whether it's soul food. I mean, all of these different dishes are available here in Milwaukee on a number of different restaurants who are putting out quality, quality food. Things that I grew up with as a kid um, that now are part of the normal parts of uh, today's society and in our cuisine. So uh, all I could tell people is uh, you can just, I mean, if you, if you want Jamaican, we have uh, pepper pot, we have mobe. We have uh, African, we have Emmy's African. We have, oh, I could just go on forever. The different types of soul food restaurants from Daddy's to um, Stella J's to Sam's Club. There's just so many different places that are putting out such quality food that we need to try. And people kind of get caught up in this is what I do. On, I go here every Saturday night and I go here every Friday night for this fish fry or whatever it is. Well, all those places I mentioned make mean fish fries, right? To get a good Jamaican twist on a fish fry or to get a good African twist on a fish fry because African cultures have been frying foods for millennia. And so it's important that we remember where we all came from. And food is a great way to connect, whether people have that intention or not. But this event is filled with that intention. So how does food play a role in fellowship for you? You know, it can be whether it's inside of this event or outside of it in your daily life. The reason why I like to do events around food is because when you're sitting at a table and you're eating food, people are tend to be more relaxed, right? It's a more relaxed environment and you're sharing food, you're talking about the food, you're enjoying the food together. And there's, this is one thing I always say, I don't care who you are, right? I'm going to put someone across from you that I know from the for a fact that you have in common. And that is, if you both don't eat, you both are going to die, right? And so what I love about food is we come to the table with something in common. We both have to eat. And then we realize from talking to each other that we have more and more in common. 
And it's that fellowship is that's that's what's been missing, right? Um, it, across the country. I mean, generally, typically, we don't live in the same neighborhoods. Our kids don't go to the same schools. And this is an attempt to try to bring us together to become more Milwaukeeans, more Wisconsinites, and more American, right? To share in fellowship with our fellow citizens. Well, Derek, I want to thank you so much for the fellowship and time you spent with me today. And good luck with this event. It sounds amazing. Audrey, thank you so much. I'm really excited and uh, I'll save you a plate. Derek Mosley is the director of Marquette University's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. He and Tariq Moody, Radio Milwaukee's Hyphen Program Director, will be leading the For the Soul, a narrated food tasting and conversation event with Milwaukee Film this Sunday at Turning Tables. You can find out more information about the event, as well as hear past monthly with Mosley conversations with Lake Effects Mallory Chang at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. Don't forget, you can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Milwaukee is home to about 35 cemeteries. In about 10 minutes, Bubbler Talk will dig into a few of them. But first, we'll tell you about maple syrup season in Wisconsin and some of the many events you can attend to try your hand at tapping for sap. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wisconsin is home to 50 state parks, more than 40 historic landmarks, and of course, lots of good beer and cheese. With so many unexpected adventures and places to discover, why not plan your next vacation right here in our home state? We've teamed up with Travel Wisconsin for a monthly conversation where we bring you suggestions for great places to visit throughout the state. This month, we're talking about maple syrup season, which is just about to reach its peak in Wisconsin. There are tree tapping and maple syrup eating events happening all over the state. The River Edge Nature Center is just one place hosting events over the next few weeks. Jeff Kierzik is the director of education there. He, along with Travel Wisconsin's Amanda Weibel, joined WUWM's Becky Mortensen to talk about maple syrup season. Today we're talking about maple syrup season, or maple sugar in season, as you call it, at the River Edge Nature Center. So, Jeff, to start, can you share what this process is like? Absolutely. So, maple sugar in season is one of the most electric months that we have here at the Nature Center. Um, We like to joke that there are five seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, and maple sugar in season. Um, In order for us to make maple syrup, or maple sugar, we need to get a lot of sap. Sap begins flowing through trees when there are above freezing temperatures during the day and below freezing temperatures at night. In Wisconsin, that typically happens in late February through March. Um, At River Edge, we tap about 400 maple trees by drilling a hole in the tree, 
tapping a spile into the hole and just letting the sap drip out into a bucket or a bag that hangs from the tree. Uh, when we get enough sap, we use a wood-fired evaporator to boil off the water in the sap until we get it to just the right density and consistency for syrup. In general, it takes about 40 gallons of sap to produce about one gallon of syrup. So you all are making the maple syrup right there at the Nature Center? Yes, we are. We have a sugar bush house, and our evaporator lives in the sugar bush house. So all of the sap uh, that we get, which usually is thousands of gallons, um, heads over to the sugar bush house where we boil it down and um, have the ability to produce our own maple syrup. Amanda, Wisconsin ranks fourth in the country for maple syrup production. How does maple syrup season impact the state's broader agro-tourism outlook? Maple syrup season is one of the reasons that Wisconsin has amazing agritourism opportunities all year round. I think a lot of people think about those opportunities in summer and fall, you know, maybe berry picking or you've gone to a breakfast on the farm during June dairy month or had a handmade pizza made with local ingredients on the farm in the summer. In the fall, of course, our pumpkin patches, apple orchards, cranberry marshes are popular. But what makes maple syrup season particularly unique and extra sweet is the timing. It's a springtime activity, and a lot of farmers are just getting ready to start their growing season, but maple syrup production is in full swing. So it's a great way to get hands-on, to learn about our agricultural heritage, and celebrate the many different foods that Wisconsin produces. And Jeff, you've got tons of stuff planned over the next month while we're kind of in the peak of maple syrup season. So tell me about some of the things going on at the River Edge Nature Center. The month of March is pretty much all maple sugaring all the time. So we kick off our maple sugaring season with our family tapping event. Uh, That's on Saturday, February 25th. In the morning from 9.30 to 11.30, adults are welcome to join us to learn all about the maple sugaring process in our sap to syrup program. In the afternoon, families are welcome to come out and help us drill and tap some of our maple trees. And that happens from one o'clock till 2.30 in the afternoon. On March 3rd and 4th, we have our maple syrup supper, which is open to our members. Um, And you can be invited by a member as well, which includes um, a maple feast of savory and sweet dishes. Uh, We also have a lantern lit hike along our trail. On March 18th, we have our maple sugar and festival. Everybody's welcome to come out and participate in some tree tapping, take part in some arts and craft stations. There'll be live music. Um, And if the weather is nice, we're going to have tree climbing. So you can climb some of the maple trees while people are tapping them. To wrap up the day, everyone gets a chance to try some pancakes uh, with some of our maple syrup. And there's also a River Edge tradition that I hope that everyone who comes out Uh, has the ability to take part in, and that is to try some pickle slices on your pancakes. Did you say sliced pickles? Yeah, you get a chance to try some uh, dill pickle slices, and it actually is a pretty good combination. It doesn't sound like it would be, but it is. It's it's a a nice little tradition that we've had going for quite a while. And then to wrap up our maple sugar in season, we have our pancake breakfast, and that is on Saturday, April 1st and Sunday, April 2nd. This is your chance to have an all-you-can-eat pancake uh, breakfast. You'd have the ability to eat some of our pure maple syrup with some pickles. Uh, The really cool thing about the breakfast is you get a chance to eat your maple syrup out in the maple trees. That sounds beautiful. I love pickles and I love pancakes. I'd never thought about (laughs) eating them together, but worth trying, it sounds like. 
it, it definitely feels like a weird combo, but I promise you it's worth trying it at least one time. I'm very interested now. Very intrigued. <laughs> what about the rest of the maple syrup that doesn't go to one of these events where people have a chance to try? What happens to the rest of the, the maple syrup that you make there at River Edge? So all the rest of our syrup ends up being bottled and uh, sold in our gift shop. Uh, so you are welcome to stop by our gift shop and get some of our River Edge branded maple syrup. There are sugar maple trees all over the state. So Amanda, if people are interested in taking part in more events like these, what else is going on in Wisconsin for maple syrup season? You're absolutely right, Becky. Well, the events that Jeff just mentioned at River Edge Nature Center sound amazing. Uh, if you can't make it, there are festivals and events to celebrate maple syrup throughout the state. So Ledgeview Nature Center is another option. They are located in Chilton, which is about halfway between Milwaukee and Green Bay. And they have the Maple Syrup Sunday Festival on March 19th. It will have sugar bush tours every half hour, demonstrations on tapping a tree and boiling the sap, and of course, a pancake breakfast. And if you're in northwestern Wisconsin, Glenna Farms near Amory is hosting its Maple Fest on Saturday, March 25th and Sunday, March 26th. So they lead sap to syrup tours to the farm, along with free pancakes, horse-drawn hayrides, and more. And the 10th annual Maple Fest is happening in Medford in April. This festival is put on by the local Taylor County Lions Club, and it's a celebration of everything maple. They have a judge food contest for maple-flavored dishes, a craft show that highlights products made from maple wood. They also have sugar shack tours, chainsaw sculpture demonstrations, and lots of other activities. And it's taking place on Saturday, April 29th. The River Edge Nature Center is only about a half hour from Milwaukee, but if people are making a full trip out of their maple syrup adventures over the next month, where are a few places they could check out to stay? There are a couple of really fun boutique lodging options that are just minutes away from River Edge. The Welcome Home Bed and Breakfast is a really quaint setting. It would be great for couples. It's right down the road from River Edge on the edge of the village of Newburgh. And the B&B offers two spacious guest rooms. They're full of charm. The house was also constructed specifically to be wheelchair friendly. And the rooms have these subtle features to help meet the needs of people with all abilities. So I love that. But if you're traveling with a larger party size, another option to consider in the area is a Bloom Farm. This is a gorgeous property. It's surrounded by towering pine trees located just outside of Sockville. And it's a really large modern house for rent. The house has six bedrooms and sleeps up to 16 people. They host some different weddings and events throughout the year. So check their schedule. But no matter what season you want to head to River Edge to explore, it's a great place to check out. And if people are just headed to River Edge for the day to check out one of these events that Jeff has shared with us, where are some places they could stop nearby or maybe on their way home to grab a bite to eat? Well, if you're heading to River Edge from the Milwaukee Metro, you'll likely be passing near Port Washington or West Bend, and they both have some great dining options. The Norbert is a tapas bar and restaurant right in downtown West Bend. And they have this classic urban storefront look on the outside and a classy yet casual feel on the inside. And if you like in mixing and matching small plates and large plates and appetizers to share with your party, it's a really, really fun place to stop. If your route takes you to Passport Washington, definitely pull over at Fork and Tap. Uh, they take classic American pub food to the next level. And I didn't realize this, but we were talking about um, pairing your pickles with your pancakes. 
So they have a great sandwich for pickle lovers that features dill pickle aioli, sliced dill pickles, crispy jalapenos, and crumbled croutons, all on top of their signature pulled rotisserie chicken. Um, so that will be fun if you have enjoyed your pickle and pancake fix earlier in the day. Jeff, why would you recommend people make a trip to the River Edge Nature Center during maple syrup season? River Edge is a wonderful place for people to come and connect with nature. Um, our maple sugar programs give people the opportunity to come out and explore some spaces um, in a way that we don't typically use them in the rest of the year. Um, our maple sugar in season is just, it is a great reason to come here, but we also have other events and programs that happen throughout the year for people of all ages. Um, if you're interested in any of the other things that are going on, um, people can head over to our website, which is just riveredge.us. Well, Jeff and Amanda, thank you so much for being here for another Wandering Wisconsin on Lake Effect. Thank you. Jeff Kierzek is the Director of Education at River Edge Nature Center. Amanda Weibel is a Communications Officer for Travel Wisconsin. They both spoke with Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen for our Wandering Wisconsin series. You can find past conversations about places to visit at wuwm.com. There's a building in Janesville that was once a stop on the Underground Railroad, and some of the most influential blues musicians were once flocking to Grafton to record music. Next week, Amanda will share some Wisconsin Black History sites to visit as we near the end of Black History Month. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm WUWM's Eddie Morales. Today, we're exploring some lesser-known Milwaukee-area cemeteries. Bubbler Talk listener Jane Savage often walks with her son and dog through the adjoining St. Adelbert and Holy Trinity cemeteries near Wilson Park. The unique gravestones and elaborate monuments there have piqued her curiosity. There's been a couple things that have stuck out to me and I just wondered uh, what the history was. Savage walks to a large eye-catching monument. I think it's copper because it's patinaed and there's an old woman looking at a crucifix um, and her hands are folded in prayer. I don't think she was a nun, but like what, who was she? What's her story? Mary Teal is the director of cemeteries at the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. I turned to her for answers. Teal says the monument depicts St. Helen. She was the mother of Constantine, the, the emperor, and St. Helen converted to Christianity. And she built many churches throughout Rome and in the Holy Land. And in art, she's often depicted as an empress holding a cross. Savage points to buildings on the cemetery grounds, including one with boarded windows. Oh, I'm also interested in these like buildings. There's this one and this one over here. Like obviously they were used at some point, but I'm not quite sure like what for. According to Teal, the boarded up building is the Conrad Chapel, which was used in the 1800s for committal services. But then new chapels will, were built just east of the railroad tracks. So we now use, um, we have three chapels at St. Adelbert's, Our Lady of Chestahova, the Hope Chapel, and Holy Family Chapel. So currently the Conrad Chapel is not in use. Teal says the chapel's roof will be repaired this spring, and the cemetery might consider restoring the chapel in the future. Savage reflects on the cemetery's presence in the Southside neighborhood. There's a lot of beautiful flowers in the summertime. And as one of my neighbors says, you know, they're not going to put in a Walmart across the street from where we live because it's a cemetery. 
Savage isn't the only Bubbler Talk listener who has cemetery questions. At the town of Milwaukee Union Cemetery near Bayshore, century-old headstones and memorials are nestled between a shopping center, Interstate 43, and ongoing construction. Question asker Peggy Creer explains how her dog's interest in the cemetery led her to it. Apparently it's a, a bit of a wild space in the middle of an urban area, so I think a lot of intriguing smells here maybe. Um, more intriguing smells once Culver's went in across the fence. But So my dog likes to wander here, and then I started reading the gravestones. Creer wants to learn more about the people buried there. Seeing how old some of this is, um, the earliest birth dates are in the 1700s. You see whole families there, little, a lot of little kids, one right after another. And I just thought this is such interesting history here. And now, so many of these, you can't even read them anymore. And I'm wondering, is anyone doing upkeep? And does anyone know who's all buried here, even if you can't read the headstones anymore? Amy Falk is the family service manager at Milton Lawns Memorial Park and Crematory. She says Union Cemetery was incorporated in 1848 during a cholera epidemic. About 2,000 people are buried there. Falk says most of the burial records were lost in 1919. There was a fire that destroyed nearly all of our physical records that we had at our original office location, and that was just a few blocks from the cemetery. It was the former Four Mile Inn. Between 1971 and 1974, a Glendale resident endeavored to name the graves. Mimi Bird actually recovered quite a bit of data to rebuild what she could record-wise. Um, any records that are left to be recovered would be for those that are interred without a memorial marking their grave. Creer and Savage say knowing the history about their local cemeteries gives a new kind of meaning to their dog walks around the gravestones. Support for Bubbler Talk comes from Landmark Credit Union. Got a question about the Milwaukee area? Submit it at wuwm.com slash bubblertalk. You can hear Bubbler Talk every Thursday on Lake Effect. You'll find more information about Union Cemetery at wuwm.com tomorrow morning. And if you want to hear last week's episode about Milwaukee's Reservoir Park, that's at wuwm.com slash bubblertalk. That's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Mallory Chang and Joy Powers join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Kate Flynn, Robert Larry, and Chase Browning. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Taryn Powell, and Chuck Kornbach from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reeby is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Villegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Governor Tony Evers has rolled out his proposed 2023 budget. Monday on Lake Effect, we'll look at his plans for education spending in the state. Plus, the Wisconsin DNR has revealed a plan that would change how they do wolf management in the state. Two scientists weigh in on the plan Monday. Were you listening to Lake Effect this past Monday? Well, if not, then you missed my conversation with astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. We talked about everything from his favorite stargazing memory to what dream job he would have if he couldn't do science. His answer might surprise you. You can hear that conversation at wuwm.com. If you've missed any of the shows or conversations this week, you can find them all at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.